How many people do you know build a successful business right out of university? Even better, how many people do you know who build a law firm right out of law school? Today, my guest is Brannigan Robertson, an employment lawyer and an entrepreneur. In an extremely competitive market, Brannigan has built a great online presence that generates thousands and thousands of potential clients every year, year in, year out. And he did all of this out of law school. That is just unheard of. So in today's episode, he shares his advice and insights and the fascinating stories about how he went on to building a law firm straight out of law school and how to win in a competitive market and break through the traditional industry rules, especially in industries like law. So without further ado, let's just jump into our episode. Hi, my name is Vindya V. This is Art of the Extraordinary the podcast for those of you who's ready to play a much bigger game and leave an extraordinary legacy behind. I'm glad you're here and it's time to make your quantum leap. Well, I do a couple of things, but I'm an attorney and specifically I'm an employment lawyer, which means I represent people who are dealing with legal issues at work. And I primarily represent employees, meaning the little guy, and usually we are pursuing cases against the company. And in California, that's a very dynamic, changing area of law. So it's it's kind of exciting from a legal respect. And then I also do, and the stuff I'm actually more excited about and the things that I've been working on lately, is I've been doing a lot of marketing efforts and specifically marketing for lawyers and marketing for my law practice. So yeah, so that's very general what I do. <laughs> cool. Now, folks, there's something that you need to understand. There's a very specific reason why I decided to bring Brannigan on the show. It's because he has gone about doing things differently. And what is something really special about him is that, so you have built your company, the law firm, just out of university. Mm-hmm. Right. Right out of law school. That's correct. <laughs> Yes. So that is something really, really special. Tell us a little bit about how did you go about doing that? And what was the thought behind you even thinking of doing it? Because a lot of people would go, oh, no, 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 no. I need to go and work somewhere for, I don't know, a couple of decades before I become a partner. And then maybe one day, somehow I will Mm -hmm. own a company. So how did that change? That's a great question. I'm not very smart. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me put it this way. When I was a young kid, I was always interested in business. I thought the idea of building a business was cool because you get to be your own boss and you have the potential to make more money and you don't have a lot of the restrictions that a lot of employees have. So ever since I was a kid, I was interested in that. And so through high school and college, I dreamed about starting my own business. And then I got out of college and I got a job and I didn't have a direction. I didn't have a plan. I just thought, hey, I'm sort of articulate. I should be able to succeed in the business world and someday I'll start a business. But I really didn't have a tangible skill set, nor did I at the time have the drive to like, I want to go pursue this, you know, start a business idea. So I kind of floundered for about a year and a half. And then I decided I want to go to law school because I need something tangible and then I can start my own business. And law school, unbeknownst to me at the time, doesn't teach you how to be a lawyer at all. (laughs) Law school, at least in America, teaches you how to think. And so when I was in law school, I thought it'd be cool to start a law firm. And when I started researching that, everyone says, you need to get 10 years of experience before you have a chance at succeeding at starting a law firm. And then I would talk to people I respected who are entrepreneurs, and they would say, no, you need to get experience first. And that really bothered me. (laughs) And one of the things about me is when people tell me I can't do something, if I really want to, I like to kind of in turn show them that I can. And so I spent a lot of law school trying to figure out how I could start a law firm. And right out of law school, 
I realized that this was a unique moment in time. The internet is this powerful thing that people are getting used to. The legal industry is under incredible change because of the internet. And I thought, well, if anybody could start a law firm, it would be a good time to do it because the internet is not being fully utilized for lawyers. And the more research I did from people who had actually started a law firm, they kept seeing things like, why didn't I do this earlier? And it's not that complicated. It's not that hard. <laughs> In fact, their upfront costs are really small, like of all industries. It's not like you have to drop $500,000 to build a dental facility or a manufacturing plant. You need a laptop, a phone, and a place to meet people. And that's pretty much it. Well, you need a law degree too. But <laughs> the point is, it's really not that complicated to start a lot of these professional services, and particularly the law practice and accountants, to start is not that complicated, the nuts and bolts. It's far more difficult from a mental standpoint. And so I spent a lot of law school kind of figuring out the nuts and bolts. And once I realized that that wasn't that complicated, I was able to focus in on what I thought was the most difficult part, which is getting clients. Getting clients right out of law school would be the difficult thing. And so I deliberately picked an area of law that I thought I could get clients right out of law school. And I was right. So I don't know if that answered your question. But. It's such an amazing story. When we were talking before, I mentioned that last year I ended up doing a research with talking to a lot of lawyers at various different levels in organizations. My target was to find out what challenges are you facing? Like, how can I help them in creating free resources and stuff like that? I'm sure that's few folks in the audience who had uh, participated in as well. And there were some people in that group who were saying, when I raised the question about, do you ever want to start a law firm? And they have already been there for like 10 years. And they're like, oh, no, 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 I, I don't want to do that. Like, like, you have to work, you know, like really hard. You don't have the knowledge, you don't have the experience for you to be going out, you'll be doing a disservice to people if you do that. Mm -hmm. That was some people's response. And some of them were saying a different story. But before I jump into that, where do you think that concept comes from that you have to be doing at that order of things before you actually do something like starting a law firm? I think there's two things. Number one is human nature, that we're normally risk-adverse creatures. We value certainty over opportunity. And so people are very focused on, you know, let me protect what I have rather than going for what they want. So I think that's a human nature thing, and that's across the board in any industry. People are very risk adverse, and so that's why our society seems to reward risk takers, not all of them, but the folks who persevere and succeed are the ones who take risks. The second thing is that the actual training in the legal profession, not just at law school, but once you're practicing, is to manage to zero risk. Lawyers are in particular learn about all the bad stuff that can happen to people. That's what they're focused on all the time. And, and not just the bad things that can happen. They deliberately think about things on how to make bad things happen to people because that's their job. Right. Yeah. And so they know all the things that could happen and that perpetuates and emboldens fear in somebody's mind. And I'm a victim of this just like everybody else, but I was dumb enough in law school <laughs> to uh, <laughs> realize, hey, look, it's not rocket science. If I can get clients, everything is going to be okay if I can get clients. And so that was the big fear of mine is that I might do this and not get clients. I'll give you a real quick story on that about fear. I got married when I was in law school and my wife is amazing. She's a beautiful person through and through. I'm very lucky to have her as my wife. And she brought into our marriage a sizable a bit of savings. And in no insignificant way, I gambled my wife's savings on starting my <laughs> law firm, which, by the way, we had our daughter, our first child, right after I took the bar exam or right before. I don't remember. One of the two. So we had an infant and I was starting a law firm with my wife's savings right out of law school. It was nuts. It was nuts. But it totally worked. I mean, fortunately, things kind of went my way. And I worked really hard, obviously. And thankfully, I'm still here today. And I'm still running. And I'm loving life in that respect. So that's really good. <laughs> that's amazing. So now be smart and be risk-taking. Be willing to risk-take. 
Yes. Get out of like Tony Robbins says, if you're in your head, you're dead. And I think that's a very true statement, particularly for lawyers. We overanalyze, stop thinking, start acting. It's <laughs> that's entrepreneurs in every industry say the same thing. You got to stop being in your head so much because invariably you'll convince yourself to do the safe thing. Mm. Well, one other thing that I realized when I was talking to these lawyers in that group was that some of the people either have just started out of law school, started working for a big firm, or some have already been there for a number of years. Mm-hmm. But what I heard consistently from everybody is one, how hard they work, and two, the industry itself is currently built in a way that they are rivals by nature, yeah. like the seniors are not going to help you out because one, they have got their asses on the line. Mm-hmm. And even if they become a partner, they have to bring in the clients. That's their job now because they have to, you know, mm-hmm. be maintaining the business as well. So the industry itself does not nurture people who actually comes out of law school and you're supposed to like somehow stumble your way upon to figuring out, you know, like your own two feet in the industry. So one of the things that you mentioned is about, you know, like how do you deal with that constant negativity and people trying to tearing each other down? Like what advice do you have for that? That's a really tough one in our industry because by nature it's adversarial. By nature you're fighting. And believe it or not, most lawyers are not fighters. It's really weird. Before you become a lawyer and you go to law school, you think that all these lawyers are articulate and they're great at arguing. That's not true. Most lawyers are super nerdy (laughs) and they watch the shows and they think, well, once I get trained, I will be very confrontational because I'll know how to be. And what actually comes out, unfortunately, is a profound amount of negativity and people get into ego fights and emotional battles with the opposing side and their clients in many circumstances. And it just is a negative cesspool. So your question is like my advice on like how to avoid that compete where others aren't. I like that as kind of a life concept is don't do what everybody else is doing. And so in my respect, one of the early things that I did is I knew that I wanted to be my own boss because I don't really play well with others. I didn't want some partner. I didn't want to be dependent on some partner to bring in cases and then me have to work the cases for him or her. I didn't want some partner to tell me how to ethically practice law. I know my ethical boundaries and I studied ethics heavily in law school because I was very concerned about screwing up and hurting my license or hurting my family or doing something wrong. And so when I say compete where others aren't is take the path less traveled. And for me, that primarily revolved around how do I get clients in ways that other people aren't. I realized something about many areas of law. Clients don't hire lawyers based on their results. They hire lawyers based on their reputation, which sometimes can derive from results, not always. But other times it's, can you have a conversation and does the client feel like they're being heard and they're understood? Because in the legal profession, our clients are very emotional for the most part. They're very upset about something that happened or something that's happening to them. And most lawyers aren't very emotionally intelligent and they don't know how to listen to the person and validate their concerns. It doesn't mean you have to tell them things that aren't true, but validate their concerns. Okay, so I'm getting a little sidetracked, but the point is, is when I came out of law school, I knew that the internet was a great place that could be leveraged with my personality. So I knew that I'm an okay communicator. I spent high school and college on debate teams and stuff like that. So I'm okay at talking to people. So I wanted to talk to people. And so I spent a lot of time writing and doing website stuff and learning about search engine optimization. And then that has graduated into doing video stuff on YouTube and putting videos on my website. And that communication has brought a flood of people to contact my office because, frankly, most lawyers do a very bad job of that, of putting out information that is without a bunch of legal jargon, that doesn't talk down to people, that is just simple to understand. And so when I'm competing against other lawyers out there, when somebody looks me up online, they see that I've got basic information that speaks to their situation, where they're in that situation, and they see my face, they see videos of me, they see I have online reviews. 
very few lawyers compete in the online spectrum because it's very expensive to do that and they're intimidated by the internet and so on and so forth. So I found a way to find a lot of clients online and that has led to all these other things coming about like getting lots of referrals and relationships with lawyers and all that stuff. So I was able to get above the board because I was able to get clients. And so when we're talking about negativity in the practice of law, largely it revolves around not being in control of your own destiny. When you have the client, you are much more in control of your own destiny. When you're subservient to somebody else who has the client, you're not. I say this all the time to people who are lawyers or aspiring lawyers. The people who get the clients make the most money. They're the happiest. They're the ones in control, always. So rule number one, if you want to be a practicing lawyer and be happy and avoid a lot of the negativity that is in our profession, get your own clients. Mm. I think you touched on a very key point because you were saying that it comes down to reputation, but it doesn't 100% revolve around just getting the results and there is an emotional side. And I personally can speak to it. I'm obviously not from the profession. And, you know, when you speak to any professional, if they're talking their jargon that yeah. normal people don't understand, you tune out very quickly and you're like, well, you don't understand me. Right, right. But if exactly. you can speak to that then yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And I was literally on the phone with a very nice lady at an hour before you and I started this podcast. And she was on the phone crying. I spent way too much time on the phone with this lady, but I heard her story. And then at the end of it, I was able to tell her very matter of factly, you don't have a case. I'm not taking it. I'm sorry this is happening to you. And a lot of people when they're told things like that, they get mad because they're not getting the result that they want. I mean, she wants me to be her lawyer and I'm saying, no, that doesn't make her happy. But because I've already validated her concerns, I've listened carefully to what she said to me and I've responded and validated not just her concerns, but I've also explained why I'm not taking her case in a very objective, non-emotionally confrontational way without all the jargon and the BS that lawyers and accountants and doctors like to throw at their clients and patients and all that stuff. She was like, you're wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm going to take your advice. I'm going to work within the system. I'm not going to file a lawsuit. And she was very thankful. And I can almost promise you, if I asked her to, hey, could you please, you know, if you felt like you got help here, could you write an online review, an honest online review of, you know, our consultation process? I can almost guarantee that she would do it. And that's very rare. That's very rare. So... I take the approach less traveled than most lawyers because I find it it works really well for my area of law, for my personality, for who I am as an individual. And I feel like people really respond to that. I'm not trying to fit into somebody else's box. I'm making my own box. Well, that gives me a nice segue into the next thing that I want to talk about, which is about creating a business that fits your lifestyle. And yeah. I think you have gone about doing that really well because I remember this one specific woman that I spoke to who's a lawyer who's been in that law firm for like, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And she was saying that she wants to have kids, but she can't do it right now because if she does go on maternity leave, she's going to come back and she's not going to be on that path to being a partner. And that made me feel really, really sorry for her because yeah. is this the nature of the industry? And plus, I'm sure there are other industries similar to this as well. So I think you've gone about doing that really well. So please, can you tell us a little bit more about how you do that with your business? Because you've got a lot of stuff happening, especially when you have your own business. Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. And first of all, I can't take full credit for my whole perspective on this. Like, I've spent a lot of time reading books from people who know a lot more about this, like Tim Ferriss and Ozzy James Shramko. These guys have written about building a business that fits your lifestyle rather than doing just what everybody else is doing. Because at the end of the day, if you are doing a job that doesn't fit your personal goals and who you are as an individual, you're going to get burned out. You're going to hate yourself or you're going to hate the people around you. It's really, really sad to hear stories like that. And I've heard plenty of stories like that, that people just kind of do what everybody tells them to do rather than find their own. So anyway, let me answer your question in a more direct way. So I value my time like most lawyers. However, I don't think of my time as an hourly rate like most lawyers. I spend a lot of time doing hobbies. 
I spend a lot of time with my family going on trips and vacation. Like last summer, my family and I, we took a month and we went on a road trip. I mean, how many lawyers can go on a road trip for a month? Not very many. And everything was fine. Like there was no big emergencies. So how I've structured my life around the business and the business around my life is I made a big priority to getting the clients so that I'm in control. If I can get the clients, I can dictate how they're handled, how the speed of their cases. If I can get the clients, I can dictate to other lawyers in polite ways and professional ways like, hey, I'm not going to handle this case. You're going to handle this case. Or we can co-counsel the case together, but here's the things that you're going to do. Here's the things that I'm going to do. Here's the fee split. So when I was really heavily practicing law, I worked really hard, no doubt about it, but my life still wasn't miserable. I wasn't ever working 70, 80-hour weeks, except for on rare exceptions, which were self-imposed because I was excited about a certain project that I was working on because I get real amped up and things definitely come in waves for me. So I guess I should break this down to answer your question in a couple different ways. Number one, when I was practicing law full-time, I outsourced a lot of clients. So a lot of people would come to me. I would evaluate their case, see that they had a good case, but I didn't want to handle it. So I would refer it to another lawyer. And in my state, in California, they permit us to collect referral fees. So I can refer the case to a lawyer that I trust. And if they do a good job on that case, you know, a year, two years down the road, they settle it. They're going to pay me a percentage of the attorney fees, which is completely legitimate way of earning a living in the state of California. Because the California really wants to reward people sending clients to the correct lawyer. They don't want people to try to handle everything. They want lawyers to really focus their practice down to doing one area of law. So I would handle some cases, like I would litigate them, but I would usually bring on co-counsel. And then other times I would just refer the case out and I would make less, but I want much less work. So that's a wonderful model if it can work for people. So I would make a lot of money off of just those referral fees. Now I practice even less and I really don't do full board litigation anymore. I work by the hour or I'll do fixed fee projects. And then I make a lot more money just off referral fees. So I refer cases out to lawyers that I know are going to do a good job. For example, I have a really good relationship with a lawyer up in, I think she's up in Ontario, California or Barstow, California. I've referred multiple cases to her over the years and she settled some cases for an extraordinary amount of money and she's paid me a referral fee. But the reason why she's willing to pay that referral fee is because I keep referring cases to her and I will in the future because she does a great job for the clients. And some of these cases were ones that I looked at and I was like, maybe I should handle that case. You know, no, I think Sarah would be better for this client. <laughs> and I was totally right because she settled it for an amount of money that blew my mind. So that's one way to kind of be able to make money, but you don't have to do all the work. So now I'm moving more into marketing and I'm doing more marketing full time and I've decided to build products and services that don't require an incredible amount of my time or it will require upfront time, but then down the road there are benefits. So I'll give you a good example. I've built 11 videos for the area of law in the United States is called personal injury law. So car accidents, wrongful death truck accidents, motorcycle accidents, things like that. So because I'm a huge nerd and I love learning and doing new things, I got handy with a video camera, audio equipment, and I made 11 videos, each one of those videos, about an area of law within personal injury. And I made them very professional. And I mean, they look really good and compared to 99.9% .9 of the videos out there in the personal injury world, they're outstanding. And there are four lawyer websites to help other lawyers in that area of law attract clients for their websites. And so I spent all this time making all these videos, and then I leased them out to lawyers all over the United States of America. So every month I get paid an amount per the contract, but I don't do anything on those videos anymore. They're made. They're done. They're an asset that works for me rather than me having to work on it. Whereas in the practice of law, when you're doing you know, the daily grind of suing people or defending people or giving advice, it's by the hour. So you get rewarded for spending more hours. That's not fun for me. I don't want to do that. 
I want to learn how to fly a drone and use it in my videos. I want to learn how to, you know, right now I'm weirdly interested in radios. <laughs> it's like I have all these just random hobbies that people are like, like you should see my garage. All the woodworking equipment in there is incredible. Like I have people come over and be like, do you actually have a job? Like, <laughs> So my life, I build things to fit what I want to do with my family and my hobbies because that's really important to me. And if I don't do that stuff, I get unhappy. And then a good example of that is back in 2015, I had a case about to go to trial. I was totally overworked. I was stressed out. My hair started getting really gray, you know, <laughs> where it hadn't had any gray before. And my whole family, not just my wife and my, well, my kids didn't really, they were too small, but my parents, my brothers-in-law, my in-laws, they all noticed like there's something wrong with Brandon's because I was working way too much. I was stressed out. Trial was coming. You know, the opposing counsel was being a jerk. So I avoid a lot of that by choices I make now. And it usually requires me putting some time up front and then taking a risk on selling something later. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's a more leveraged time yeah, as opposed to leverage. working hours. Yeah, absolutely. Well, switching gears to talking a little bit more, talking about the business side. Now, obviously, when you started, you didn't have any clients. And the clients right. didn't have any way of saying, okay, is he a good lawyer? Is he going to do justice by me or not? How did you get around that one? So my very first case was a referral from a friend of mine from law school. First of all, you have to establish, if you want to build a referral-based business, you have to have lots of relationships. Relationships are key, right? So I became friends with a lot of people, and they all knew that I was starting a law firm because I told them. And I feel like I worked hard enough in law school and I'm personable enough that I earned their respect. Not that I was the smartest because I certainly wasn't in law school, but I showed people how excited I was about employment law. I told everybody I was going to start a law firm uh, about the third years when I started telling everybody I'm going to start a law firm right out of law school. And so I earned a little bit of respect. And so I got a few referrals right out of the gate, which was awesome. And referrals lead to more referrals. But by far and away, not the most – I get the vast majority of my clients from online. So how I did it was early on before I got licensed, I was building all of my website and I did it in a way that most lawyers don't do. I spent an extraordinary amount of time writing long articles about certain areas of employment law. And I was writing it from the perspective of somebody who just got fired or somebody who was just sexually harassed or somebody who didn't get paid overtime, not the perspective of me vomiting lawyer gobbledygook on them in jargon <laughs> because they don't read it. They don't understand. And so I, I just spent a lot of time putting myself in somebody's position. What happened was my website went live after I got licensed. Well, I did hire somebody initially to do some search engine optimization because I didn't quite understand exactly what that meant at the time. But by far and away, I did the vast majority of the work on my own. I had all the research into learning about search engine optimization and how the internet works, I did on my own. It was weird. Like a couple weeks after I started my website, I got a phone call. And then I started getting hits on my website and then leads. And then it just kind of grew and grew and grew and it hasn't stopped growing. It's not uncommon that on any given day, I'll get 10 phone calls from prospective clients. 10 phone calls is amazing from potential clients and a huge hassle because <laughs> most people would kill to get two phone calls a day, one phone call a day from a prospective client. But 10 a day, that's a really difficult challenge to manage. I don't want to sound like I'm complaining about it. I'm not, but... <laughs> It is a good problem to have, but it is a problem because <laughs> how do you actually get any work done when all you're doing all day is talking to potential clients? <laughs> it is a good problem for sure. Yeah, but that is segue because you know now there's more competition online. So now what's the new frontier? Well, in my opinion, online video is the new frontier. Podcasting seems to be a huge thing, although I haven't spent the time to research podcasting and really digging into that. But it's huge now, and it's so funny, like, I like to think that video is the future for online marketing, but I've been wrong so many times about technology. Like I remember when Facebook was invented, I was like, that's the dumbest thing ever. Why would I ever want that? I remember when I got the first text message, I was like, that's stupid. Just call me. <laughs> 
So I'm not the best predictor of things, but I was right about the internet and the internet does work really well for my area of law. <laughs> I think uh, the point that you mentioned a couple of times, which is, you know, not being so smart. I think actually that's an asset because when people are too smart, they just think that they know everything. Yeah. Oh, and they're not curious. Yeah. And I'm guilty of that in many respects, many, many times. I mean, I turned down a case once. Oh, actually, no, I took the case. And then I thought, ah, oh, you know, these clients aren't very nice and they're not very articulate and this business doesn't seem that big. So I told the guy that I was doing the case with like, hey, man, I don't want to do this case. That case settled for $2 million, right? <laughs> if I had just stopped thinking and did the case, I would have gotten a good chunk of $2 million. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was a big oops, right? <laughs> but well, you learn. Yeah, 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 you do. Well, one thing that I do notice is that, so employment law, so that is a very competitive area in law. Very, yes, very. So in the beginning, or even now, how do you stay on top of the competition or the market or the trends? Well, I like to think of competition as look for where people aren't competing, right? I've already mentioned that in this podcast, but I think one area that most people fail is they don't look at the intersection of specialization. And what I mean by that is they don't look at where two things mix. So the law and the internet, those are mixing together, provided me an opportunity. The law and YouTube mix those together, provide me an opportunity. I would suspect the law and podcasting, when you mix those together, provide an opportunity. Now, you have to be proficient in both, right? You can't just be good at the law and not good at podcasting because it'd be a really terrible podcast, right? And then likewise, you can't just be good at making videos and be terrible at the law because you can have a fancy video, but nobody's going to watch it if they think you're just blowing steam. So I think to stay on top of the way things are changing is to be the driver of change. And you're not always going to get it right. Actually, you'll probably fail more often than you succeed. But look for where people aren't competing and more importantly, look for the intersection uh, where skill sets or talent or whatever. And that intersection is the opportunity because it's really hard to be good at two different disciplines and combine them. So not very many people are competing like that. When you first started, of course, yes, you did know law and you had an interest to in building a business, but obviously there were lots and lots of skills and mindset shifts that needed to happen. What took you by surprise when you were first building it? You mean the business? Yeah. So like in building the business, what yeah. took you by surprise in skills you needed to know or pick up or mindset shifts that needed to happen? 100%. It's all about mindset. And I did not understand that. You know, you read about that all the time. In all these self-improvement and business development books, it's like, oh, it's all about your attitude. I thought that was, yeah, I've got a good attitude. And then I realized, oh my gosh, you know, the people who are very successful are very, very determined to be successful. And I don't think of myself anymore as an, a highly motivated person. I am motivated, no doubt about it. But, you know, when you compare yourself to other people, you go, holy cow, like, I spend way too much time watching videos or playing with my family or doing stupid stuff in the garage than I do working on moving forward. And so mindset is the biggest factor in success. This might sound a little bit odd. I mean, we're doing a podcast about doing things differently in the law and people might be looking at me and go, Hey, Brandigan's, you know, successful from my perspective. I'm not successful yet because I haven't like gotten to the place that I want to be yet at the same time, I'm not 100% every day working a hundred percent of my time on getting there. I'm also enjoying life along the way a little bit. <laughs> and I think that's a good thing to have some balance and not be totally consumed. But with that said, the negativity that comes with the profession in many other professions, there's lots of conflict. There's lots of challenges that you have to go through. The only way you will succeed and stay afloat is if you've got some determination to stick with it. And I think the best way to do that is to set up systems. If you don't have systems, you're not going to survive. I'll give you a good example, right? Earlier in this podcast, I said I get sometimes 10 phone calls a day from potential clients. If I didn't have a system to handle that, 
I'd be burnt out and I would have moved on to a different area of law because 99 out of 100 of those calls are not good cases. Some of them are okay, but we're looking for the rare good ones. And we really pursue those ones because that's where we can actually make a difference. A lot of people are like, oh, you know, all these lawyers, they just turn down most cases. They're only cherry picking the good ones. That's not true. We're looking for cases where we can actually make a difference. You know, it's very difficult to make a difference when you've got a really bad case and there's not enough money at stake because the economics don't play out for anybody, for client and for the lawyer. But anyway, so really the big determining factor is setting up a system. So like I have an entire system for handling all these calls. I have a full-time employee. His only job all day long is to deal with these potential clients, handle them empathize with them, listen to them, set the right expectations. And we've worked and refined that system over years. And without that system, every single time I would sit down to work on a, like file a lawsuit or work on discovery or put out, you know, some interrogatories or whatever it is I needed to do for the law, I'd get interrupted by a new phone call. Like, how can you get anything done? You can't without a system. James Clear, in his book, Atomic Habits, says, we do not rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our systems. And that is so true. So if you want to succeed, you have to be determined to set up systems more than setting astronomical goals and occasionally working for them. No, set up a system to work towards that goal. So right now... We are working that system and growing it. And right now, I'm really working hard on setting up YouTube to work for me because I think it is a long-term play for the law. So anyway, I don't know if that answers your question, but (laughs) I think it's huge. It definitely answered, and you gave a little more as well. And I love that quote about setting the systems because I think that's what it comes down to because motivation would go only so far, and then after some time, it's going to run out when something negative happens. But if you've got the systems in place that you can still fall back on, that's going to save you. I'm the king of losing motivation. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. I start so many projects and then they dwindle. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because it's good to try things. But, oh my gosh, I know I would make way more money if I stuck with certain things for a lot longer. But I get discouraged just like anybody else. I'll tell you, there's lots of things I get discouraged about. But what is fortunate is that the systems that I have set up in place don't allow me to stay discouraged. That's huge. Well, I want to jump in and talk about YouTube. But before that, just a quick question. So one thing you mentioned was that when cases come through, you check to see whether you know whether it's a good case that you can actually make a difference. Mm-hmm. What's the importance and what's the impact that would happen in you in picking a good case compared to picking a great case? What exactly do you mean, the difference between a good case and a great case? Like, I'm, I'm what does it mean to you? Like, what would happen if you pick a good case as opposed to picking a great case that you are passionate about working on? If you're not passionate about the person that you're helping or the cause that you are fighting, it doesn't necessarily mean, like, politically. I mean, just like this person, do they have not only a case that's worth pursuing, but it's, I really feel that injustice has happened here. And if I succeed with this case, I'm going to change maybe this company. I'm definitely going to change my client's life, but am I going to change that company? Am I going to potentially change a lot of different cases because other people are going to hear about this result that I got, whether it's published or it's a trial or whatever. I mean, you know, we lawyers are just like everybody else. We talk about our successes and we talk about our failures. And if I have a good successful case and I'm talking with 10 other employment lawyers, they're going to try to emulate that, right? So you can have good change that way. But I think to more of the heart of your question, well, how does it, for me, if I'm not really passionate about that case, they're just going to become a dollar sign. You know, it's like, okay, well, I need to work that case because the deadline's coming up or I need to really get discovery out on that. Otherwise, I'm slacking. Now, in certain respects, the legal profession is really good with deadlines, right? It forces you to move the case forward. And without those deadlines, even lawyers like me would fall behind. But a case that I'm really excited about, I move forward and I move it fast. I'll give you an example. I had a case uh, probably five years ago where I had a client who at work, she worked at this, it was a veterinary clinic and she had 
dog leashes wrapped around her neck by other individuals at the place of employment. They put plastic bags over her head as a joke. And when she called me and described the things that they were doing to her and why they were doing it to her, I mean, I felt it in my gut. I wanted to help this lady, and I did. And then I had another case where, and this one really hits home for me, I had a client who was fired after she delivered a stillborn baby. It was a terrible situation, just what happened to her with the child. I mean, she carried a child all the way to full term. Sadly, the baby died, and then she was fired. I almost cried when she was in my office telling me the story. And it's cases like that that make a huge emotional impact on me that I moved forward and I was really happy I did because I made a huge change, not only in my client's life, but those stories, even though both of those cases ended up quote unquote settling, those stories that people have heard, just that general thing, like they see the passion and it makes a difference. And other lawyers, they look, they get excited, they fire up about their own cases. So anyway, I don't know if that answers your question, but it matters a lot to me. Absolutely. Well, I guess I'm just thinking to myself now, well, what does it mean when it comes to like big law firms? Because usually you don't have that much connection with that person because it's just a case. I wonder what difference that makes. That's a really good point. And that's a really difficult thing. For me, it's really hard to just work a file. It's very difficult. Other people, that's what they like. They don't want that personal connection with the client. Just personality differences is not one way is better or the other, but for different people, there's different ways of doing things. So if you're a person who doesn't want to have a bunch of client contact, working at a big firm might be good for you. Working underneath a lawyer might be good for you. That might just jive with your personality more. But there's lots of people like me who chase the big money and the big law firm because they think it's prestigious or that people will like them more or they're going to make more money there. That almost never plays out right, especially the way the law firm, well, at least in America, I don't know how it is across the globe, but in America, the very few law firms want you to become partner. <laughs> and I say that really because they want you to be an employee. They want you to work their cases to make them money. You're not making them money if you're the partner. Now, yes, some partnerships, all they all come in all different shapes and sizes, but by and large, they want you to work their files and they want to bill you out at a certain amount. They want to predict how much money you're going to make. You're a mathematical formula to them. Yeah, yes, they care about you. Yes, they want you to succeed. Yes, they probably individually want you to you know, reach your highest potential, but they also want to make money. And the reality of the practice of law is the more hours you work, the more money they make. So what do they want you to do? Yeah, that's a great point. It's a tough one. It is a tough one, but like I know so many lawyers who should be at big firms, who should work in that model because that's what makes them happy. They don't have to work with clients. They don't have to deal with judges most often. They're working a file. They don't leave the office very often. Okay, that's okay for them. If that works for them, good. But make sure that you know what you're getting yourself into because you don't have as much control in those situations. Brian, I want to just switch gears into talking a little bit more about the one YouTube channel. Plus, I want to talk about Bar Digital Media. Just tell us a little bit about how you're serving lawyers using this now. Yeah, so I'm really fascinated with video, with online video. I mean, there's all sorts of statistics out there from like Cisco and saying that 80% of all online traffic is going to be video in like 2025 or something like that. So and I believe that because how much YouTube is growing just in and of itself. Nowadays, when I want to fix something in my house, I don't Google it. I YouTube it. <laughs> that sounds kind of <laughs> kind of silly. But if I can visually see and most people are visual learners, if I can visually see something happen. It's much more real for me than reading it. So in my opinion, YouTube is a underused medium for lawyers. Now, there's lots of lawyers on YouTube, lots of them. The problem is they approach it just like most lawyers approach the website, which is a dissertation or a resuscitation of their successes or a very broad <laughs> statement of the law and you should call us. And while there's nothing wrong with that, that's what everybody sees and has seen for years on television. They're not interested in hearing from a lawyer who's just going to talk about how great they are or you know, the law in a very dry sense. They want you to make it real for them. So I decided to approach it 
from a whiteboard format, almost like a professor. Like each video that I do, almost every video that I do is there's a whiteboard, which sounds super boring, right? A professor giving a lecture. It's not like that. If you watch a couple of the videos, you'll see camera angles changing all the time. I'm bringing it. It's very specific to a certain area of employment law. Yet I'm not so lawyery that it looks really stuffy. I usually don't even have a tie on. It's very much about educating the person about the area of law, when they should contact a lawyer, when they should make a complaint at work, when they should do X, Y, or Z. And it's all in a general sense. I'm not giving specific legal advice to specific people. It's a generalized understanding of areas of law. And we're getting phone calls. I mean, it works. Now, it wouldn't work in every area of law, in my opinion, but it works really well for consumer-oriented areas of law, people who are serving the general public. I think it works really well. And by the way, if you put those videos on your website, <clears throat> here comes the search engine optimization angle to it. You're increasing the amount of time that they're spending on your website. But you can't just have boring videos like, okay, here's a good example. BAR Digital Media, this is kind of a nice segue into the other part of your question, is my marketing company. And my marketing company, we do a couple of things. Number one, we make pre-made videos like stock videos for certain areas of law. And right now we have an entire set for personal injury, which is probably the most heavily advertised area of law. And we're in the middle of making an area, a set of videos for family law, which is another area of law that's heavily advertised. So we make stock videos and then we put law firm information into those videos and then the law firms put those videos on their websites. So they don't have to spend $20,000 making one video. They can rent 11 videos or 10 videos or six videos, whatever the set's going to be for each area of law for a small amount of money each month. So it's financially makes a lot of sense and they get a lot of bang for their buck. I think it's a really good way they get professional videos without having to do custom videos because that's really expensive. For most law firms, that's just not worth it. Worth it. I mean, there's a really great company out of Atlanta that makes incredible custom videos. But before I got into the video thing, I even got a quote from them. It was $15,000 for one video, a two-minute video. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And yeah, there's a lot of law firms who want that. But wouldn't you rather have 10 for fractions of that? I think so. So anyway, that's one idea. And that business model is exciting and fun. And I think I provide real value for people, but it doesn't come with its challenges. Selling that is really difficult because selling the lawyers is super difficult. <laughs> um, but the second thing that we're doing is an online newsletter. This goes to the core of the practice of law. Not everybody can be a great online marketer, right? And not every area of law is good for websites and YouTube. Right. Most of the practice of law is a referral based business. It's a relationship based business because your brand is your name. You really get clients based off who knows you. And yes, your results do help amplify who knows you, but it's not just results. Anyway, long story short, most people who practice law get clients because of who they know. But the problem is, is we meet so many people. It's very difficult to stay in contact with people in a real genuine way. And with all the world that right now of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, I don't really like those forums for staying in contact with professional contacts. There is LinkedIn. I don't really have a strong opinion of LinkedIn at this moment, but I haven't spent a ton of time focusing on it. But here's the deal. Lawyers are in their inbox day in and day out. Their email inbox, that's where they live. I'm not even joking you. If you talk to any lawyer, how much time do they spend in their email inbox? All day long. So you primarily get clients from other lawyers. Other lawyers refer clients to you. So you should be reminding all of your professional contacts, particularly other lawyers, about what's going on in your world in a creative and fun way. And I think an email newsletter is the way to do that. And we provide a service for lawyers to do that. So the online newsletter, I think, is a really good way to stay in contact with people. And we do it in a unique way. You know, we don't have these big formal templates or any of that nonsense. It's a very short personal email. It usually is referring somebody to somewhere else. 
But the point is just to remind people that you exist and then you get more referrals. So it works really well for my law firm. I get a lot of referrals from it. And I know lots of law firms across the country who send out a newsletter and to great success. I just wanted to make a way to make it easy for people and affordable for people. And so that's why I'm doing it. Now that you're moving into more the business building side, the marketing, the advertising and the media side, what kind of hurdles did you personally have to like face early on in building the business and how did you beat them? Well, I had to face scaling back the practice of law, which accompanies scaling back how much money I'm making to do these other things, right? So <laughs> I have a mortgage. I have two children. I have you know a wife and all these responsibilities now that I didn't have. Well, I, yes, I had responsibilities when I started my law firm, but not as significant, especially financial responsibilities. So scaling back is very risky and scary. Yeah. So that was challenging, but by far and away, the bigger challenge is the mental challenge. It's a big mental risk to switch gears after you've told everybody what you're doing. And now wait, he's doing something different. What's up with that? Wait, did he fail? Is he just, you know, pretending like he's, you know, he, so there's all that that goes on and you're always your own worst enemy. But yeah, I, did that answer your question? It was a really short answer. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Well, one thing that I think uh, I'm sure you face is that when you first started, like I'm sure a lot of people went up, oh, no, nah, that's another way to do it. Don't do it. That'll be utterly stupid. How did you deal with that? I get a lot of phone calls from law students who are thinking about starting their own law firm because they're reading my articles and stuff like that. And I always tell them, people are going to judge you. Let them judge you. Because <laughs> two years later, when you're still succeeding and they're still slaving for somebody else, they'll be like, you know, that that Brannigan guy kind of he kind of did it the right way. <laughs> um, and I have a friend of mine. I consider him a friend of mine now. He contacted me several years ago as a law student. And then he contacted me when he became a lawyer. And now he started his own law firm. And I've told him this multiple times. Like, people are going to judge you. There were so many people who judged me. I would hear from my friends, like, oh, yeah, so-and-so is, like, making fun of you because you're going to start your own law firm. And I was like, oh, really? <laughs> and now and now I just laugh because how many of those people have changed jobs three times who hate their life now because they've been working for some jerk boss or what, you know, whatever. You hear the stories over and over and over. So, you know, I'm very content and excited that people, they judge me because I like that. It's weird in a way. Maybe it's not normal, but I like that people doubt because that gives me an opportunity to prove them wrong. And not in a vindictive way or anything, but it's just like that personal thing. Like, I like taking on challenges like that. Now, most people are super gracious. They don't make comments like that to my face, for the most part. I mean, my father didn't want me to start a law firm right out of law school, and I respect his business acumen. I respect my father a lot, but he didn't want me to start it, but I still did it. So I'm able to at least hear what people say, filter it through my own lens of what is right or wrong, filter it through my own tolerance, filter it through my own confidence in myself and decide what I'm going to do. And sometimes I decide to go for it. Other times I give in. It just depends on the situation. Well, I guess most of the time they're just projecting their own limitations yeah. onto you. Yeah, I think that's entirely true. You know, people compliment often through their own insecurities, right? So they'll, they'll compliment you on things that they think that they're failing at. Have you ever noticed that? I think mm. that's fascinating. I do that too. I notice myself, I'm like complimenting someone. I'm like, hey, like, I mean, yes, it's a legitimate compliment, but I'm complimenting them because they're doing something I'm not. And that makes me insecure. You know, it's, it's kind of a funky thing. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, a psychology behind it. Well, I know that now that you have been on this journey, I'm sure it hasn't been all a bed of roses. I'm sure you had setbacks and maybe some failures along the way. If you had some, how did you face them? How did you deal with them? I've told multiple people this, lots of people this. Early on, I almost ran out of money three times. And it just so happened that the sequence of settlements saved me three times. So it's not all roses and cupcakes and, you know, bubble baths. <laughs> it is... <laughs> It's difficult. And then that wasn't even the most difficult part. You know, early on, every small business has cash flow issues, especially when you're doing a contingency fee like what we are doing. Like we don't get paid until the end of the case and cases can last. I've had cases last four years, right? It's nuts. But one of the biggest challenges was back, I think it was 2015 when I was getting close to trial. I think I've even mentioned it in this podcast where getting close to trial, it was very difficult. It wasn't just the trial. I was having a conflict with the lawyer who was going to try the case with me. He was 
not happy with me and he was frankly a complete asshole to me and over this case that I'd worked up and I'd worked up well for two years. And the reason why I know I worked it up well is because we won the damn case. <laughs> you know, like so I know we did a great job on the case. But to have somebody who's highly regarded in my own industry, actually one of the top names in my industry, really come down on me thinking that I did a bad job on the case. And then what happened is that really affected me emotionally very badly. And my client who's looking at me going, hey, we're six weeks out from trial and you're telling me that this big lawyer doesn't want to try the case. So obviously I'm responsible now. I'm like, I could try the case on my own. I'm very confident in my abilities, very confident. But is that going to lead to the best result for my client? Well, I don't know, maybe. But I wanted to bring on another lawyer. And fortunately, I was able to find another lawyer to help me with the trial, which was a, an immense relief for me. So going through that, and we won the case and it was wonderful, but it was a very challenging part of my career because, again, I gave up part of my control of my client and of my case to this big lawyer that I didn't really know very well. And that person treated me very poorly. But in the end, I got the last laugh because we won a trial and we got a great settlement after the trial. And my client was super happy. And that big name attorney is never going to get another case for me ever again. And every lawyer that comes to me and goes, hey, I heard about so-and-so got another big verdict. I'm like, yeah, that's great. He's never going to get a case for me again. And I'm a big lead generator. And I get a lot of clients in my industry. And that's unfortunate for him because he's a great lawyer or he's a great trial lawyer. And if he had just stuck, not even, didn't have to necessarily stick with me, but treat me with dignity and respect, I might refer cases to him. Not anymore. But I bet at that moment, you must have felt like, okay, this is not good because th this yeah. is a person that is highly regarded. So. Right. right. And think of it like in the tech world, right? Everybody knows who Steve Jobs is. <laughs> He's like the Steve Jobs of employment law. That's who right. was coming down hard on me. And as you can think, that's very difficult to handle, especially when you're a young lawyer and you've got a good case and your client's looking at you. That was hard. And so that was a significant challenge. But because I you know, made it through that, I found another great lawyer who now gets a lot of cases from me, <laughs> uh, a lot of cases from me, a lot of cases from me, because he stepped in and helped me and we got a great result for the client. So I learned a good lesson in that process. You got to stick with it. Even when it's all gray and dark and it's only raining, you're going to get through it. You just got to stick with it. And that's not always the easiest thing to do, especially if you're not self-employed. It's easy to quit or to resign and just go look for another job. I get that. But that's not always the best option. I can't tell you how many times, and this is coming from the employment lawyer who's received thousands of calls over the last couple of years Quitting is not always the best option. It's not always the best option. It might emotionally make you feel better for a little bit, but it's not always the best option. And in terms of succeeding in business, if you own your own business, it's certainly not the best option. What would you say is the best advice you have been given? Ooh, that's an incredibly difficult question to answer. Really difficult because I'm always filtering who's giving me the advice and what do they know. The best way I think I can answer that is with what's recently been coming into my brain. I like to feed my brain with positive stuff. And lately in the last couple of years, particularly the last year, I've been really on to the idea of waking up early. There's a book called The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. Elrod? Elrod? One of the two. Wonderful book. It's about starting your day off right with a system. Ho oh, ho. And that system will help propel you through the difficult challenges of the day. I'm not perfect. I don't wake up early every single morning. And lately, actually, I have been pretty poor at it. But waking up early has been hugely instrumental in changing my outlook on a lot of these things. Secondly, systems. I'm not perfect at setting up systems. Actually, I'm pretty good at setting up systems. I'm not good at working them. <laughs> <laughs> so learning my own weaknesses has been a big deal. And setting up those systems to cater to avoid my weaknesses has helped a lot. And I attribute a lot of that motivation, although I've done plenty of reading on the subject, but I attribute a lot of that motivation and recent enlightenment on system creation to Atomic Habits by James Clear. Wonderful book that 
everybody who wants to do anything in life should read. I also would say one of the things that has been resonating in my head for a long time now is if you're in your head, you're dead, which is a Tony Robbins quote. Tony Robbins is an interesting guy. I'm not necessarily on the whole bandwagon, but that quote really resonates. Stop thinking, start acting, stop overanalyzing, just do it. You're going to fail. Who cares? Who cares? Because everybody fails. You just want to fail less. Everybody fails. So get out of your head, do your stuff, and eventually you'll find, holy crap, I'm not failing anymore. This is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not always what you planned. It almost never is. It just kind of happens. Like, did I plan that the vast majority of my clients would come from online? I hoped that that would work, but I planned on having a referral-based business. But because I had a lot of success with the online, then it reaffirmed and it became kind of a, well, I want to learn more about this. Can I get more clients from online? And now it's like this whole thing. Like, I just love learning about online marketing. And so it's just kind of grown out of its own success, but you don't get a success unless you first try. So long-winded answer, sorry. (laughs) That's all right. There was a lot of golden nuggets there. So yeah, it was worth it all. Cool. (laughs) Well, what would you say is the worst advice you've been given? I don't really believe in patience. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I drive my wife crazy because I'm not a very patient person and I feel for her. I really do. But yes, good things do sometimes come to those who wait. In certain situations, that is true, but I don't find that to be the rule. I find that to be the exception. I think if you want something, go get it. And you might not get it the first try or the second try, but you'll probably get it if you keep trying. But don't wait. Don't wait. Just do it. Because everybody waits. So many people wait and they never achieve their potential. Not even saying I have achieved my potential, but don't wait. I find myself procrastinating and waiting all the time. And it's usually to my deficit, not to my benefit. (laughs) I think I'm going to tag Nike in the podcast. Just do it. Yeah, just do it. There you go. (laughs) I didn't even think about that, but that's perfect. Well, if you could go back to when you first started, what would you change about how you did things if you could? Well, there's lots of things I wouldn't do. Uh, because they failed, <laughs> obviously. But I think I would have spent more time setting up systems early on. If I had done that, I would have freed up a ton of time. And I would have freed up a lot of mental space that I now have, but I didn't have before. Having a family is stressful. Having a business is stressful. Having a mortgage is stressful, right? Having employees is really stressful. And if you don't have systems in place to deal with that, I'm sorry, you don't have business doing any of those things, right? The reason why people have habits is because it makes life easier. So find your habits and work them and improve them and don't be afraid to change things. So I would change early on a lot of things, but they almost all would revolve around setting up systems because I didn't do enough of that early on. What would you say is like the number one thing you've learned about yourself having been through this entire journey? I'm an artist, not an entrepreneur. That is a profound realization for me, not for anybody else, right? profound realization for me. Like, whoa, wait a minute. I've started my own business and then I started a marketing business. But then I kind of realized I'm much more artistic and I like the craft of like making a video more than I like building a business to make money. And I could not have ever learned that without actually trying to build a business to make a bunch of money, right? Like that's a really interesting and weird thing. But now that I really understand that about myself, I can cater to that. And I will make more money now because I know that about myself. I used to fancy myself this great entrepreneur, but then I spent time with a bunch of really great entrepreneurs. I'm like, whoa, like these people, they do a lot of stuff that they don't want to do a lot. I don't want to do that. So yes, I am an entrepreneur, but I'm more of an artist. And now that I know that about myself, I can really focus in on that. (laughs) Love it. Well, Brannigan, what are you looking forward to? You know, I really do enjoy my family and my hobbies. I hope to continue that. But I do look forward to a bigger 
enterprise, for lack of a better word. I don't really think of myself as ever steering a very large company. I don't ever want to have the hassle of running a big company. I would like to run a very nimble, flexible organization, but I need to grow a little bit more and have a little bit more scale before I'll be able to do that. So I'm really excited about that. So while I've got staff and I have a very good thing going, I am excited about growing it, but not in a way that's going to take away too many ways, but you know what I'm saying? Not going to take away from my lifestyle or my priorities, my family, my hobbies, you know, just doing life. I want to do more life and not just to make money because I'm just making money. When you really think about it, it's pretty boring. Just making money. The exciting thing about money is what you can do with it. And if you can satisfy your life with the amount of money that you have and you can, you know, pay for your kid's college and retire comfortably and do what you want, then that's awesome. Yeah, I want to make a ton of money for sure, but I want to make sure that it's not at the sacrifice of my life. Love it. Well, Brian, again, how do people find you? I don't know if I they... your question. I don't even remember it now. <laughs> <laughs> you did. You did. You definitely did. Well, how would people find you if they're interested in employment law or if it's a lawyer who is looking to be like you, how do they find you? Google's wonderful. <laughs> you just type in Brannigan Robertson and there's my you know, employment law website. If you're a lawyer and you're interested in getting in contact with me, whether you just want to chat or if you're actually interested in some of my marketing services, you can go to BARDigitalMedia.com. Very simple. BAR. That's my initials, Brannigan, Andrew Robertson, digitalmedia.com. But otherwise, I'm on YouTube. If you make a comment on a video, you'll get in contact with me. My email address uh, is Brannigan at brobertsonlaw.com. I'm very responsive via email. So that's very easy to get in contact with me. I'm on Facebook, but eh, Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, LinkedIn, I check that maybe once a month. So I would try email first. <laughs> nice. It has been wonderful having this chat. I really enjoyed it. And you shared a lot of resources for the folks in our audience. I'm sure they're loving it. Thank you so much for being in the show, Ryan. Very welcome. Thank you for having me. A big thank you for Brannigan for sharing all the insights that he did with us. And please go and check out the show notes at www.vindiav.com for all the resources that he shared. I have made sure that the summarized version of the podcast is also there. So if you didn't take any notes, please don't worry. And let me know what is your number one takeaway from this episode. My name is Vindia V and until I meet you next time. Keep at it in your extraordinary journey.